0: The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Our first scripture reading today is from Exodus 20, verse 14. You shall not commit adultery. And now from Hebrews 13, verse 14. Verse 4. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. All right. Well, again, if we haven't met and... You've come in since the last time I was up here. My name is Russ Ramsey. I'm the pastor here at Christ Prez Cool Springs, and we've been in this series on the Ten Commandments. And this week we're doing the seventh commandment, and then next week we're actually going to go back and get the sixth commandment: "You shall not murder." Um, but uh, I wanted to do them. I wanted to reverse the order because I wanted to talk about this one live in the room, uh, and uh, and leave the one about murdering people for when you're at somebody else's house. So. So that's why we're doing that. Um, I, I kind of have a couple of uh, big umbrellas that are that are sort of how I want to arrange what I'm going to say this morning. The first is I want to say very plainly what we believe is at Christ Pres to be a biblical sexual ethic. So I want to start there, and then. I want to talk about this commandment specifically, you shall not commit adultery, uh, what is being said, uh, what was being understood when it was originally given, Uh, Jesus elaborates on this as well as the book of Hebrews, and then we're going to talk about what it means to really get to the heart of this command for how we treat one another in general. And so that's where we're going to go. So let me start with this. Um, The... The historic biblical sexual ethic, and this is what I believe, uh, this is what our denomination as the Presbyterian Church in America believes is this, is that human sexual activity is reserved for the context of a marriage between one woman and one man. Uh, That's the position that I hold, and I want to say it again because I want to be just, uh, it's it's important to be clear on this, and i don't have a lot of occasions on Sunday mornings to say this um, so it's this: that a biblical sexual ethic is sexual activity is reserved for the context of a marriage between one woman and one man. I was at a conference uh, not that long ago it was actually kind of a one day thing and and one of the features of it was there was a, a debate that had a moderator, and the debate was uh, between a liberal mainline minister uh, who was homosexual, whose uh, his his husband was there in the room, uh, and then a theologically conservative pastor who was there, and they were there to kind of debate and discuss their differing views on human sexuality when it comes to, uh, from a theological lens and a pastoral lens. And at the end of the discussion, the moderator, this was the closing question that the moderator put to each person. And they sa- he said this, he said, how would you summarize, what would you say is the strongest point that the other side makes about their position? It was a great question, right? So, so what points would you put on the board for the other team? Uh, and the conservative minister went first, and what he said, and I, I resonate with this so much, is he said, there is a kindness and hospitality that is extended to people who struggle sexually um, in the other person's world and their church life that is rare to find in theologically conservative circles. And I think that's accurate. Um, I've experienced that. I see that it's something that grieves my heart. Um, and it's something that my prayer for us as a church is, is that we would be a church that would be very welcoming of people who are, um, Processing their sexuality and struggling uh, there. That's an important thing for the church. When he put the question to the more liberal mainline minister who was there, he said, what, what do you think is the other side's strongest case that they have to make? And he said, without hesitation, they have scripture on their side. And I thought that was a very interesting and revealing thing because I appreciated the candor of that. I appreciated the candor of that because basically what he was saying, and I think that this is the way I would summarize, is he was saying that you can make a case for alternative views of a sexual ethic beyond one man and one woman in the context of marriage. You can make a theological case for that but you just can't make it from the pages of Scripture. And I think that that's a very fair statement. And it brings me to this. So much of what we believe about our worth, our identity, our human flourishing come from whatever the voices are that we regard as authoritative. Christians are people who are called to hold Scripture as the prevailing authoritative voice in our lives and to hold all other voices then subject to the authority of Scripture. But here's what I would add to that. It's not that Christians are called to hold Scripture as the authoritative voice in their lives and everybody else is free from having an authoritative voice. Everybody has an authoritative voice that they yield to. Everybody has some sort of voice that is telling them this is the voice to which you should give your allegiance, ethically, morally. Relationally, when it comes to your identity, everybody has some voice that they yield to. Most people don't clearly know what that voice is. And so we're yielding to the loudest voices in our culture or we're yielding to ourselves. But everybody yields to some authoritative voice. The question that everybody then must ask is do you know what voice? you give, you know to which what voice you give ultimate authority. Never thought about that. Because it's easy to say, oh, you Christians, you just embrace this ancient book and it's so, uh, uh, it's, it's so naive for you to put your faith in these ancient writings that have that are so old. But it's also naive to think that you don't have some other code that you bow your knee to and that you bet your life on. And the question is, do you know what it is? There's so much more I want to say about this, but I wanted to say that very clearly. (laughs) But for the sake of staying on focus with the sermon that we're in, I got to move on. But what I wanted to say is this. I embrace the authority of scripture. That is the sexual ethic that our church embraces, that I as a pastor embrace. I'm gonna return to this subject as soon as I can. Um, But to honor the scope of today's sermon, I wanted to establish that and then move on into this commandment so so that we have that at least as a baseline. All right, are you with me so far? Okay. You shall not commit adultery. That's the command. This command was given in a crazy time when polygamy was all over the place. Uh, and there was very little in the way of infrastructure. When you think about, in, f- in fact, it's funny. Like if, if, <laughs> if anybody started, if anybody wants to go back and start at the beginning of this 10 Commandments series and just tally up the number of times I've used the word infrastructure, You'll find that I use this word a lot because it's key to understanding a lot of the significance of what makes the Ten Commandments such a big deal. Um, part of what makes it such a big deal is there was no infrastructure. And we, we I, it's, I, I make the point over and over, I'm going to make it again in the murder sermon. Um, the murder sermon. Has a ring. Um, because... It's easy for us as Westerners to take for granted some of the things that have just always been in place for us that would make us then interpret these commands in a particular way. There was no class infrastructure. Okay, so that helps us understand what to do with polygamy when it comes to a command like this. So monogamy one man one woman in the context of marriage that's what monogamy is monogamy is the model for human sexuality in scripture it's there from the beginning god made adam adam said something's missing god made eve and then he stopped making wives right he made eve and so that's the deal is he was given one wife And this command was given during a time when polygamy was practiced. And there's one commentator I read who made this observation, and I think it's good for us to hear. He said, polygamy was practiced, here's the quote, perhaps a necessary social institution to secure the protection of unattached women. Polygamy served a purpose for protecting unattached women. Because in those days, it was a particularly heinous thing for somebody to take another man's wife in a way that wasn't so heinous to take a woman who wasn't somebody's wife. And so, this command is, in a way, culturally, for them in the moment, is sharing a little bit of similarity with you shall not steal, and it's sharing a similarity with you shall not covet. In other words, do not want or take what isn't yours. Consider people as sacred. And so, so like, this is probably the window in the next two or three years where you're gonna hear me talk about polygamy from the pulpit. So, savor it. Um, In an ancient culture without infrastructure, which would include basic things that we have like, and here's what I mean by infrastructure, uh, uh, an agreed upon and established legal system, not there. Uh, Available food and housing, not there. Civil rights, not in play. In those cultures, it fell to communities to police themselves and to govern themselves. And in many cases, what this meant is those who were in power were free to exploit those without power. And this command is a prohibition against that. It had a social value to say, you as a society protect unprotected women. That's part of this cultural impact of this, that it protected women without the benefit of infrastructure. Jesus then in the New Testament says, yes, but it's not just that. He takes it into the heart And he says in his Sermon on the Mount that this command is about so much more than social protection. It's not about less than that, but it is about more than that. It's a matter of the heart. We are to regard one another with a purity of mind and with a purity of heart. We are to regard each other in that way. And so Jesus says, if you desire somebody, if you even desire somebody that's not your spouse... Sexually. You've committed adultery with them in your heart. That makes all of us adulterers or liars. Right? It it puts us all in that category. And so we need to approach a command like this with humility. But with this command, Jesus isn't just concerned with the protection of others, but with the purity of our hearts in how we regard others. And so what's at the heart of this command? What's at the heart of it? And that's what I want to spend the rest of the time with, is every command should and can be expounded upon by asking this question, what's at the heart of this? Why does does you shall not steal matter? Uh, Why does you shall not covet matter? You shall not murder. How does it apply to the heart? As we've done with so many commands in this series, what I want to do is I want to invert the command to draw the implied positive from the stated negative. In other words, for every thou shalt not, there is a thou shall, right? And so Jesus, when he summarized the law of God, somebody asked him, how would you summarize the law of God? He boiled it down to two positive commands. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and you shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. This is how he summarized the law. So this prohibition against adultery is a command to love. It's a command to love others. And anybody who has been near the blast radius of adultery will know Adultery is not just a sin against a woman. And it's not just a sin against a man. It's a sin against men and women and husbands and wives and sons and daughters and mothers and fathers. Right? This command touches everyone. It reaches deep. And so there are three things that this command is teaching us. The first thing that it's doing is is it is upholding the sanctity of marriage. The Hebrews passage talked about that. That marriage is a sacred thing. We're to honor it. And it's so dear. In fact, marriage is so dear to the heart of God. That he uses it as a picture for how he loves us. He uses this as a category for us understanding the way that he loves us. He loves us as a groom, loves a bride. In other words, that bond runs deep. It runs so deep, in fact, that God says marriage is nothing short of two people becoming one. Our lives are so intertwined. Why does God use this kind of a relationship, this kind of an image, this sort of language to describe our relationship with him? It's because we are in a covenant with him. We are bound to him, a binding oath. There is what we should expect from him, a holy exclusivity in how God loves us. And it's an exclusivity that is reflected in marriage. With that exclusivity comes devotion. God uses the intended devotion in marriage to express the strength of his devotion to us. Do you want to know how devoted I am to you? I'm as devoted to you. It's it's like the way that a husband and wife are devoted to one another. It's like that. The Old Testament talks about God in this light. Isaiah 54, five through seven says this, your maker is your husband the Lord of hosts is his name and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth he is called. God uses marriage. He goes on to say, let me finish reading that. Sorry, I didn't finish. It says, the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God, for a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. God uses marriage as a symbol of fidelity and devotion, even a symbol of redemption and grace. And adultery, which is the prevailing image of the book of Hosea, is is, you see adultery as something that corrupts the image and empties marriage of its beauty and its sanctity. And so this command is upholding the sanctity of marriage. The second thing it's doing is it's teaching us what to expect from God and how he loves us, right? And so we should expect when it comes to the love of God, faithfulness. There's a purity in Jesus' love for his people that assures us he's not looking for another lover. He's not looking for an upgrade from you. He delights in the bride that he has chosen, and he will never leave. And since none of us keep this commandment perfectly, according to the standard that Jesus gives us, Jesus is our only hope of being kept pure. And Ed Clowney, who wrote a book on how Jesus um, illuminates and interprets the Ten Commandments, uh, he said this, only Jesus was truly pure. He kept for us the seventh commandment against adultery. His holiness is the ground of our justification in this area of purity. The way that our world wants to approach this is to just lower the standard of devotion. It's hard to be faithful, so let's just lower the standard of devotion. When you lower the standard of devotion, one of the things you also have to do is you have to lower the standard of sexual purity. And so that's what's happening all around us all the time. And Jesus tells us, but your life is holy to me. Lowering standards is not how we do this. Your life is holy to me. He tells us we matter, that we're blessed with the dignity of being made in the image of God, and because of that, we are worthy of respect, and this is the way that he will love us to the end. And so this command teaches us what to expect from the love of God in Christ. And third, finally, it teaches us how to love our neighbors as Christ loves the church. This command gives men and women, for example, this commandment gives men and women parameters for how to relate to one another and therefore freedom to be friends with one another, right? It's a question that people have been asking for a long time. Can men and women be friends? Yes. (laughs) Yes, you can. Yes, you can. Jesus calls us to treat one another as sacred and to respect each other's worth in the sight of God. What does that promote? Friendship. It promotes friendship. Now, here's a place where we have to be careful. Okay? And it's this. If you are somebody who cannot have friendships with people of the opposite sex without struggling with temptation, do not blame that temptation on the other person that's not their fault that's something that you need to work through with the lord you need to recognize that that temptation lies in you and ask the lord to help you overcome that temptation and this principle applies to all manner of how we treat one another if we're to regard one another as sacred, if we're to regard one another as worthy of respect in the most intimate of settings, then it follows that we're to regard all people of, as worthy of the same in any setting, including friendship. And so this command isn't about limiting how we interact with one another. It's about Guiding us in how we interact with one another. It's about setting us free to give people the honor and, therefore, according to Jesus' second greatest command, the love that they deserve. It's as C.S. Lewis wrote in The Weight of Glory he said, There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. And this does not mean we are to be perpetually solemn, we must play, Lewis says, but our, merriest, our merriment must be of that kind, and it is in fact the merriest kind, which exists between people who have from the outset taken each other seriously. C.S. Lewis, The Weight of Glory. If you haven't read that essay, it's a book, but there's an essay in the book called The Weight of Glory. It is worth your time. So my my prayer for us is may the Lord, in his kind mercy, give us an ever-deepening capacity to love and respect one another with purity of heart and a culture that devalues fidelity. And may he give us eyes to see the true beauty and worth of others and wisdom and strength to know one another well and to love one another well. Let me pray. Father, it can feel like with commands like this that we're walking a razor's edge and that we could fall off so easily to either side. And in the process of wanting to be careful there, we can make decisions about how we relate to others that just minimize our ability to know and love and serve one another. And I pray, Father, that you would do the work that you promised to do in us, the sanctifying work of making us more and more like you. Father, I thank you for this congregation that has given me attention for the last 25 or 30 minutes to talk through these things that are complex, that are Culturally, very challenged right now uh, and maybe disagreed with by people in this room. Lord, I pray that, that uh, disagreement would not be a cause for division and separation uh, and that we would learn to live well with one another even when we don't see eye to eye on everything. Uh, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way that you call us to a deeper understanding of your affection for us. And, uh, and Lord, I, I, just, I pray also that you would shield and protect and guard this congregation from the sin of adultery. Uh, and I just ask that plainly. In your name, Jesus, amen, amen.